Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, our fourth week in our study through the Apostles' Creed. And today we come to the beginning of the largest section of the Creed, quite appropriately so. Two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed is devoted to the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are other great world religions that believe in God who created heaven and earth. It's the person of Jesus that sets Christianity apart. Lots of people have opinions about who Jesus is. In fact, everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. That's how significant a person he is in history. But the question should never be, who is Jesus to you? The question is, who is Jesus? We're in Matthew chapter 16, beginning of verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In this passage is the most important question in all of history. It's the most important question that historians need to ask and answer, but it's also the most important question every person needs to answer at some point in time, and it's Jesus' own question about himself. Who do you say that I am? We like to diminish the importance of that question by saying it's about what Jesus said. It's about how he cared for people. Have you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? There's some great stuff in there. Jesus was influential enough that we really shouldn't have to divide ourselves about who Jesus is. But you see, here's the problem. Jesus divided people about that question. The Pharisees, in one of their many debates with Jesus, said this to him, who do you think you are? They found his claims, which we'll explore in a few minutes, incredulous. The followers of Jesus, when he performed the miracle of calming the storm, their question was, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, the writers of the gospel make it clear. They're not just trying to help you understand what Jesus said and appreciate what he did. They want you to understand who he was. And when Peter, in this setting, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, that's it. That's what everything has been working up to. And on this statement, I'm going to build my church. On this reality, some have misinterpreted this passage that Jesus is saying to Peter, on you, I'm going to build my church. But you have to understand the subtle play of Greek language here. Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros, 
which is a stone about the size of a hand, it's the same phrase that Peter uses later on in his epistles to call all of us living stones. In other words, the kind of thing that you can build with but not build on. It's a brick, not a foundation. He gives Peter that name. Peter then turns and gives it to everyone who professes Jesus as Christ. Peter is the prototype living stone. He honors Peter for being the first, but it's the declaration that matters. He says, on this rock, that Greek word is petros, that's the feminine, and it means foundation. On this bedrock principle, I will build my church. What's the principle? It's what he's been building up to in the whole Gospels. He says, you need to understand that Christianity, the church, is built on, rises and falls on the person of Jesus Christ. Because everything he says and everything he does can only be fully understood when we understand who he was. And it's why the early church adapted the ichthys. Now, you've seen this uh, bumper battle between Christians who have the Christian fish and those who uh, have Darwin. It's been associated with a particular view on creation. And now we have battlefish on bumpers and others that are saying, no, science is our friend. I heard somebody very smart say that last week. But None of that has to do with what that symbol is about. That symbol is known as the ichthys. This is what it looked like in ancient times. It was drawn in the sand. It was drawn in the dust. It was a secret symbol that Christians would use to identify themselves to each other. In some ways, we've so diminished this by letting it get caught up in this bumper battle of ideas. It's such a shame. Each letter of the Greek word for fish, which is ichthys, is the beginning letter of these statements, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So every time the early church was drawing the ichthys, they were claiming who this Jesus was, that not only were they following, but by the score they were dying for. That's why it's so important that we come to this phrase and understand it clearly. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And when we look at this statement, carefully written by the church, we actually see four truths about who Jesus is. I'm going to give them to you now, then we're going to go through them one by one. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ. I believe in God's only Son. And I believe in our Lord. Four truths that help us understand who Jesus really is. Why he's the foundation of our faith and our life and our destiny. The first, I believe in Jesus. This is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua. It's actually a very common name. But it was common because of its meaning. It literally means God saves. In the first chapter of Matthew, when the angel appears to Joseph because Mary is pregnant, the angel assures him that this is a miraculous thing. We're actually going to talk about the virgin birth next week. When we hit, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The angel confirmed to Peter that that was a miraculous truth. And then he said, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name 
Jesus because this Jesus will actually save his people from their sins. You see, every other Joshua up until this point was named that way in the hope of the real God saves, the one who would come who would be our savior. So the first thing that we understand by this creed is that Jesus is our savior. He came into the world on a mission. He didn't just come to hang and to heal and to pontificate. He came with a mission to save the human race. If you don't see and understand that about Jesus, then you miss the real Jesus. But we go on. I don't just believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ. Now, let me just clear up something right away. It's probably obvious to most of you, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. He didn't grow up in the Christ family. Christ is actually a title, often translated as Messiah. It literally means anointed one. So in the Old Testament times, prophets, priests, and kings would be anointed at the onset of their work in order to say, you have been called by God, you have been set apart by God for his purposes. So that was the general use of the term, the anointed one. But there was the Christ, the one unique anointed one the prophets had said would come and be the ultimate deliverer. The one that God sends, he sets apart for the supreme purpose of saving Israel. When Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, he's not just saying you're an anointed one in the same way that we might call certain preachers anointed. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, you're the guy. You're the Christ. You're the one that everything else points to. You are the one true redeemer that God promised. You are the Christ. One of the fascinating proofs when we look at who Jesus is uh, and validate who he himself claimed to be is the fulfillment of over 300 major and minor prophecies in the Old Testament about the Christ. We're not going to take time to look at it today, but were you to look at these prophecies, you would marvel at the very specific nature of them. Not, we're not talking Nostradamus kind of stuff here. We're not talking about horoscopes, you know, vague allusions that you can find whatever meaning you want to. We're talking about very specific facts about the Messiah that no person could personally orchestrate. And yet Jesus didn't fulfill five or 10. He fulfilled every single one of them. The odds of that are roughly like a paint factory exploding and producing the Mona Lisa. It's miraculous. He is the Christ, the one that God sent, set apart, to come and redeem Israel and to bring salvation to the world. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ. The third thing that we see in this creed about Jesus is that he is God's only son. The emphasis here is the term only. Because in some sense, even scripture refers to all of us who have come to the Father through Jesus as sons and daughters of God. But this speaks of Jesus' relationship with the Father that is his alone. In John 3.16, Jesus himself 
speaking about why he came, said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word is monogenous. The first section of it is mono, and it means unique, one, only. Genus is the same word that we get the words genetics, genes, gender. It means nature. And when you put the two words together, what it means is one and only, absolutely unique, one of a kind. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that God sent his son into the world and his son is a unique being for which there is no equal, no comparison. He is his one and only unique son. Now, I need you to understand the significance of this claim in the context in which it's being declared. Because Jesus is declaring divine unity with the God of Israel. The God who says, the Lord our God is one God. And you will have no other gods before me. This is why followers of Judaism and Islam believe that Christianity is polytheism because they say, well, you believe that the Father's God, you believe the Son is God, and you believe the Holy Spirit is God. You, you worship three gods. But that's not what Christianity teaches, and that's not what Jesus claimed. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus claimed to be God. This was not something that the apostles made up later because they had plans for a great con on humanity from which they would benefit. Every one of the followers of Jesus, all except John, suffered a horrific death because of their claim about who Jesus is. And John should have died, except that he was miraculously delivered from attempts to kill him, boiled in oil, and survived. Finally died of old age. These men suffered for this truth. And many men and women suffered and died because of it. Why? Because Jesus himself claimed it. When Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God, he's claiming divinity. And he's also introducing a reality about the God who has always been that Israel didn't understand. And that's what we now refer to as the Trinity. That God is one in essence and in nature, but yet he exists in community. See, we have a hard time with that because each of us has an individual nature. If you're a human being, you have a nature. It's uniquely yours. It's attached to your body and your personality. So we say, well, that's the standard. So we look at God, and God says, no, there's one nature, that's God, but within that nature, there are three coexisting persons. One God in three persons. This is what Jesus was claiming when he talked about being God's son. John 1.1, 1, 1. we talked about this last week. In the beginning was the word, which is Jesus. The word was with God, and the word was God. Remember we talked about that word was in the Greek, I me, which means had always been. And so the first thing John is saying is that before the creation of the world, there had always been the Word, just like there had always been the Father. And then he said, the Word was with God. The Greek word for with means face to face. In 
eternal relationship with one another. So John in this one statement says that the Son is eternal as the Father is. The Son is distinct to the Father and in relationship with Him. And then his third statement is, and the Word was God. Again, that same word, had always been God. And that is not only what John is explaining, but that's what Jesus claimed. Let's look at some of Jesus' own words about this. There were two accounts in the Gospel of John where the Pharisees are really getting mad at Jesus. And they're around these claims of of deity and divinity. And the first is in John chapter 8. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they're really mad at him now because he's claiming to be ancient. You are just a young man, and yet you claim you knew Abraham. And then Jesus says this statement, before Abraham was, I am. That phrase, I am, is really, really important because he's invoking the very name that God chose to speak of himself to Moses, the self-existent one. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. Before Abraham even was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus escaped. In John chapter 10, the debate rages on. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Doesn't mean we are same. We are synonymous. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the Father and I have one nature. Two distinct people, one nature. They picked up stones to stone him again. This time Jesus says, I've done many miraculous and wonderful things and and signs. For which of these do you stone me? And the Pharisees said, we don't stone you for any of these things, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Please make no mistake, who started the notion that Jesus is God? He did. You can't be neutral about him. What kind of man claims to be God? Well, there's two possible outcomes of that claim. One is that he's right. We have to deal with that. The other possibility is that he's wrong. What kind of man claims to be God but's wrong? Well, there's two possibilities there. Either he thinks he's God and he's not, which makes him a madman, or he knows he's not God and is claiming it anyway. That makes him a con man. Jesus doesn't allow us to be neutral about him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. 
he did not intend to. It's brilliantly written. Jesus clearly did not intend for us to deal with him neutrally. His intention was that we either fall on our face before him as God or we reject him. And it was those who rejected him that ultimately crucified him as a heretic. And in all the preponderance of evidence, the ultimate sign was that when his enemies killed him, which ultimately was God's plan anyway, taking on the sins of the world, taking on the punishment that only God himself, a holy and unblemished sacrifice, could take for the race. When he did that and was laid in the tomb, he conquered death itself. Jesus is Savior. Christ, he's the promised one of God who came as God's unique and only Son, one with the Father. And that leads us to the fourth statement. I believe in Jesus as our Lord. The word Lord is curious. And what it means is absolute ruler. It's the common phrase that the early Christians used. Jesus is Lord. You hear it over and over again. Romans chapter 10, Paul uses it when he says, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In order to understand the significance of this phrase, Jesus is Lord, I, I want to set you in the Roman world of the first century. Rome had an expansive empire that went to the east. The mystical religions went down into Africa, went up into Europe, the pagan religions. And the way Rome kept everyone together is not trying to convert everyone to their plethora of gods, their mythology, their god worship. They required everyone to do two things. First, to pay taxes. Second, they simply needed to declare Caesar is Lord. In other words, as long as you participated in Caesar worship, you could then worship anything else you want. And this was the one thing that the Christians could not say. They couldn't say that Caesar is absolutely supreme because only Jesus was that. Listen to me. The Christians didn't die because they believed Jesus was God. They didn't die because they believed Jesus was Savior. They didn't die because they believed Jesus was the only way to heaven. Because that's all religion, and there were many religions in the Roman world. By the tens of thousands, Christians died because they could only declare that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And it's important that you and I reach that point as well. When I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying Jesus is absolute authority in my life. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is God, and Jesus is my Lord. 
I want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2, another familiar passage. We were here last week. Can we say this together? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. He goes on and says, and that will result in the glory of God the Father. Little mini teaching here. The best way to worship God the Father is to declare that his Son is Lord. Too much of our worship focuses so much on God of the Old Testament that we forget ultimately he's revealed himself perfectly in his Son, and he is most glorified when we elevate his Son and humble ourselves when we kneel before him as our Lord and as our Master. You want to be a true Christian worshiper, that's the way to do it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 reminds us that not only does everybody have to answer that question, but everyone will. You can put it off, you can delay, but someday, whether in this life or when you stand in judgment before God, you're going to have to confess that Jesus is Lord. To confess now is to confess Jesus is Lord to eternal life. To confess when we stand before the Lord in judgment is to surrender to a truth that now condemns us to eternal judgment. But make no mistake, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a blessing to be those that bow and bend our knee now. To be freed from judgment, to be redeemed from the penalty of sin. And along with the one and unique Son of God, to lay claim to being sons and daughters of God. That's available to all of us. And the question is still the same. Same question Jesus asked his disciples. What about you? Who do you say that I am? When Peter got it right, Jesus rejoiced as he rejoices for all of us who make that profession. We're going to take the time we have left in the service today to lift Jesus and to honor him. And as the worship team comes in place, I just ask you to picture Jesus standing and looking directly at you and asking you, what about you? Who do you say that I am? For those of you that have been wrestling with that, do you understand how critical it is to surrender to him as your savior and then as master of your life? Do you understand that that's the path to eternal life? Why don't you do that right now today? and then stand in worship of Jesus as your Lord. And for those of us that have made that profession in the past, what's the reality of it in your life? Do you humbly bow and honor him as your Lord? Father, we now gladly profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.